This is an ABC News special, COVID-19, What You Need to Know. Here is ABC News correspondent Aaron Katursky. Whenever we venture out from under our coronavirus-restricted lives, things may be a little different. No more break room in your office, kids eating in classrooms instead of cafeterias, and congregants worshiping six feet from one another. The Centers for Disease Control prepared these and other guidelines for the nation's eventual reopening. The CDC said the restaurant menu should be thrown out after you order, and you should eat off of disposable plates with disposable utensils, as if every restaurant meal is like something you're served on an airplane. When to reopen is a judgment call for civic leaders and is informed by models. Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston just released a coronavirus simulator that predicts the number of infections and deaths when and how restrictions are eased. Jagpreet Chatwal created this simulator and he's with us now. How's this work? It's a model designed to inform policy-level decisions at a state level. For example, the many questions like when should we lift restrictions, what is the right timing, what can happen if we lift them sooner than later. The tool can answer some of these questions. In addition, it can show what happens under different scenarios. How many deaths could occur because of those, the transmission in the community, how many hospitalizations would be required, and ICU admissions. I was struck as I was playing around with it, what a difference even a couple of weeks of extra time under restriction could make. Yes, this is a very important point, and many people do not realize that in a pandemic like this, two weeks can make a big difference. That, that, this is one of the important messages and observations uh, from this tool that Kanman can make. Did any of it surprise you as you were looking at the data? I think the most surprising thing we observed was that timing is very important. One or two weeks, as you observed yourselves, this is extremely important. This was surprising of finding. So we have to be very careful with when do we lift restrictions, to what extent we lift restrictions. All these can have a huge role in uh, changing the trajectory of the pandemic. Can we look at Massachusetts for a second, just by way of example? Yes, sure. The governor, Charlie Baker, extended the closure of non-essential businesses until May 18th. But the simulator suggested had they been lifted around then, that would have caused a tremendous spike in infections and deaths later in the summer. Yes. So let me explain this so, so that people interpret these results correctly. Assuming that we would not bring back the restrictions, in that case, things will go out of scale. It's exponentially increased. Practically, this is not going to happen if we lift restrictions and we see that next two, three weeks or four weeks we have increase in cases, I think the natural response will be to bring back the restrictions rather than let things happen. So what you're seeing right now, what you described is that if we lift restrictions and do not bring them back for the next two months, this is what is going to happen, yes. Jagpreet Chatwal at Mass General in Boston. Much of the reopening plans depend on testing, so states understand who was infected, who had the virus, and who is still at risk. New York started an antibody sample by testing thousands of people at random outside grocery stores. So far, nearly 15% tested positive for coronavirus antibodies. Anthony Santella is a public health scientist at Hofstra University on Long Island, and you were one of those shoppers that received an antibody test. Yeah, so um, over the last 
two weeks, the state has tested now up to 7,500 random New Yorkers uh, to see who has the antibodies for the SARS-CoV-2 virus that causes coronavirus disease. They happen to be at the stop and shop in my neighborhood. I was curious if I was one of the, you know, estimates of 40% of people who are asymptomatic. And? And then they did a finger prick, put a drop of blood on a card, and three days later, I got a text message with the results that uh, they were negative or non-reactive. So let's clear some of that up. I mean, from a public health perspective, how useful are these antibody tests? Yeah, so... There's been so much emphasis on the role of the antibody test in returning us to whatever our new normal is, reopening the economy. You know, it's been talked about every day by every official. And yet there are a lot of question marks. The first is the the test itself, the diagnostic. Now, I've seen some tests being advertised as they're FDA approved and they're not. So it's already misleading there. The second thing is, All tests, all diagnostic tests have what we call sensitivity and specificity. It looks at, it measures how good is the test at finding a true positive and finding a true negative. And I've seen some tests out there that have, you know, uh, 90, even in the 80s in terms of the percentage of, of sensitivity and specificity. So a bad test is no better than no test, in my opinion. I wanted to ask you about the two different antibodies the immediate onset and then the one that develops in you know in weeks is one antibody test better or more useful or more telling than the other yeah i mean probably the igg the second one the one that the state public health lab antibody test is using those antibodies you know develop um, usually like i said 3 to 4 weeks after infection with some kind of germ and lasts for a long time plus if you're testing for the first one the igm that's produced you know within a few days of infection someone still may be an active infection it's less useful when it comes to what it does it actually mean for your recovery and immunity and of course, we still don't know whether the antibodies actually convey immunity to coronavirus. So, credible scientists that should be heard have ranges from a matter of months to years. That's a huge difference. Professor Anthony Santella at Hofstra University. We've talked here before about Zoom, the video teleconference platform that has become part of the new normal for those forced to stay at home because of the pandemic. We're learning now Zoom could be vulnerable to intrusions by foreign government spy services. Josh Margolin's chief investigative reporter here at ABC News. What's the Department of Homeland Security so concerned about? They have questions about the security measures that are in place and whether or not the Zoom platform is protected from intrusions. And the questions that are raised and the issues of concern for American intelligence now are that the Zoom platform is not secure from the potential intrusions of foreign spy agencies, foreign governments, specifically China is what the DHS is saying, but they're talking about other agencies. Because it's more than just baking and Pilates classes that are using this platform while we're all working from home. That's exactly it. The 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 intelligence brief that was put out by DHS on Monday says that as Zoom use has exploded, it's not only exploded 
through the use of, you know, personal use and, and, and casual business meetings. It's being used by government, by law enforcement. What if your job is working for a nuclear power plant? What if your job is working for the IRS? And this is, to be clear, Josh, beyond Zoom bombing, which the FBI has previously worried about where people intrude on conversations and post pornography or inappropriate messages. So that's kind of like the prank calling version of a security breach. It's obviously terrible, especially some of the content, especially nobody wants heinous, racist garbage thrown at a, a, a workplace meeting or thrown out if there are kids on there or there were interruptions of synagogue services or other types of things. That's terrible. But what what the American intelligence services are now talking about is a, an entirely different order of magnitude. Surreptitious access to the system in order to secretly gain information and secrets. Zoom have anything to say about this? First of all, the company insists that every time security issues have been raised, they have been quick to respond. They also say that there is nothing that they're doing and nothing in their company's development and server structure that's any different than any other high-tech companies that operate in China that have different locations. The company is aware that there are these issues out there. The company says that they are taking it very, very seriously, and they insist that their platform and their servers and their systems are properly protected. And in fact, some of the issues concerning about the development in China that they have these firewalls that have been built up around those systems. So the company insists that that the system is safe and that these concerns are not valid and they take issue with what American intelligence is reporting now. Josh Margolin, my colleague on the ABC News investigative team. And coming up, our chief medical correspondent, Dr. Jennifer Ashton, answers your questions about coronavirus. I'm Aaron Katursky. You're listening to an ABC News special. You're listening to an ABC News special. COVID-19, what you need to know. Here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. With me here is ABC Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Jen Ashton. We've talked about this and we've certainly heard about these uh, reports that coronavirus does not affect men and women the same way. What do we know? Well, from the beginning, it was apparent that men were more at risk. Initially, it looked like they were at equal risk for infection, but men were at higher risk of death. We are continuing to hear and learn more about it. At this time, here is what we know in this area of sex-specific medicine. Number one, every cell in our body, Amy, actually has sex down to a chromosomal level, so therefore they behave differently. We also know that in general, women are much more likely to suffer from autoimmune diseases, which may be a clue here. And then lastly, we know, as you said, in terms of COVID-19, at every age group, men are at a higher risk of death due to COVID-19 disease. Well, and we've also seen these kinds of key differences in heart disease as well in respect yep. to COVID-19. What seems to make men more vulnerable? Well, these are the theories on the table right now, and this is what people are looking into specifically for the difference between men and women in COVID-19. Number one, are there hormonal factors at play? And it doesn't necessarily mean the female hormones working well. It could be the opposite. 
Also, are there immune factors? We tend to think of women as having a more robust immune response. That may be uh, one of the theories. And then lastly, are there behavioral or social factors? Meaning, do men engage in behaviors that may put them at higher risk? Or socially, are they treated differently in a hospitalized setting? So Mm -hmm. all those things being looked at. All right. What is unknown right now? Well, first of all, and this is so important, in the United States, the CDC is not yet tracking COVID-19 cases by sex. And that definitely needs to happen so we can understand more. And then when we're looking at this down the road, if there is such a big sex difference, will the vaccine doses need to be different, men versus women? Or will treatments need to be tailored differently, men versus women? And again, we don't know if men are more at risk or is there something protective about being a woman. So all those things still being actively researched. All right, Dr. Jen Ashton, you'll be back with us later in the show. Thank you. Joining us now to talk about what is happening on the front lines of her city is the mayor of Charlotte, North Carolina, Vi Lyles. Mayor Lyles, thank you so much for joining us today. And I want to begin with the question that is clearly on the top of everyone's mind these days. When do you anticipate your city opening back up for business? Charlotte is following the emergency declaration from our governor, Roy Cooper. And what he has said that when we have a trend of 14 days where we've either leveled or declining cases of the COVID-19 virus, then we can talk about how we reopen our city. Now, this is really important because the governor and I have stood clearly on the side of working with our public health officials to make sure that we stand up for those residents that may be impacted by this virus. Another big question in regards to your city, you know, we know Charlotte is supposed to host the Republican National Convention in August. We heard from Dr. Anthony Fauci, who said he has cautious optimism about Charlotte's ability to host this summer. Where do you stand on that? Well, first and foremost, there are two things that are important. One, Charlotte has a contract with the National Republican Committee to host this convention. But now that we have this pandemic virus going on, we also have a mandate to follow whatever the guidelines are coming from our public health directors and from our governor's office. So we're going to hope to do both. But if there is the convention, we will follow the emergency declaration because safety of people and wellness of people is the first and foremost thing that we have to deal with. Yeah. And you talked about protecting the vulnerable. And we have heard through this pandemic that some of the largest disparities have involved race and ethnicity. Can you talk a little bit about the impact the virus has had on the African-American community there in Charlotte? You know, Charlotte is a new South City, but we are still dealing with the vestiges of discrimination and segregation. And what we found is that people of color, our black and brown citizens and residents, aren't able to access health care. So those chronic conditions are pushing them into being less well if they have this virus. And so we've got to deal with this. We need better access to health care. We need telemedicine in communities that need it. So we've got work to do. And I hope that we'll look at this long term and say, what can we learn from this time and do better for our black and brown residents? Certainly. Um, Are you getting what you need from the federal government right now? We're working really hard to keep the PPE equipment available for our first responders. Our emergency operations center has now been open over 45 days. And we are finding ourselves that we need a few things. We need testing equipment. We need to have a protocol for nursing homes. We need to understand how we deal with tests that come out positive and develop quarantine um, methodologies. If we could have a national 
presence and standards. I think that would really help every major city in this country. We certainly applaud all of your efforts. Charlotte Mayor Vi Lyles, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. The governor of Texas announced his state will allow some businesses to reopen on Friday, joining a growing number of states that have begun to implement phased reopenings. Here to share his views on what states need to do before they can safely reopen is former U.S. Surgeon General and member of Vice President Biden's Public Health Advisory Committee, Dr. Vivek Morphy. Uh, doctor, thanks for being with us. And you know, and we know a number of states easing the rules, beginning to slowly reopen. Do you believe that we are ready to do this? Well, I think in most states in the country, we are still not at the point where we're able to open safely. And let's just admit, everybody wants to open. We're all struggling and hurting in various ways. We've got to open up quickly, but we've got to make sure that a few things are happening before we do that. That the number of new cases is declining significantly and for a prolonged period of time. And that we also have the testing, contact tracing, and hospital surge capacity so that we can identify infections and treat them if they if they develop further. Dr. Morthy, let's talk about testing because the president unveiled his plan to help states with that yesterday. It would send enough tests to screen at least 2% of their residents. But a Harvard study suggests in order to reopen the country, 2 to 6% of the population will need to have tests each day. What is your opinion? Well, listen, right now you know, we are doing uh, just a fraction of the tests that we need to be doing each day. We need to be closer to a million tests a day that we're able to perform. And it's not just the number that's important, but it's also the distribution. We've got to make sure that all parts of the country have access to the tests and that the turnaround time is quick. If we don't have that, then it's like it's essentially like flying blind. We are going to be opening up without the ability to effectively detect where infection may be surfacing. We can't detect it. We can't contain it. Now, you have a new book that's out today. It's called Together, and it's about the power of human connection. Well, right now, we're all coping with the loss of our typical social lives. So talk about what effect that can have on us if we lose that human connection. What can it do to our health? Well, you know, one of the most surprising things I learned when I was Surgeon General from talking to people across the country was just how common and consequential loneliness is Mm -hmm. in so many of our lives. Uh, Over 22% of adults in the United States struggle with loneliness. And people who live with loneliness have an increased risk of heart disease, dementia, depression, anxiety, premature death, and even fragmented sleep. So this has powerful implications for our health. But there's a bright side to it as well, which is I realize that human connection and our relationships are an extraordinarily powerful resource in our life. They can enable us to be healthier to perform better in the workplace and school, and even dialogue more effectively in our communities, which we could sure use just about now. I love that. The positive side, you actually have four strategies to help avoid loneliness during these times. What are they? So quite simply, spending 15 minutes a day with someone that you love, either via phone or video conference, is a powerful way to create a lifeline to the outside world. Second, making sure that the time you have with people counts and that it's high quality by reducing distraction, particularly from our devices, And third, looking for ways to serve is is so essential because I realized in the writing of this book that service is a powerful antidote to loneliness that shifts the focus from us to someone else and also reminds us that we have value to bring to the world. And finally, solitude. It's essential, particularly in moments of upheaval like right now, that we embrace a few moments of solitude during our day, time when we can allow the noise around us to settle, where we can refocus and reground ourselves And when we approach other people, 
Uh, after just a few minutes of gratitude or time in nature or time spent in meditation or prayer, we often find that we're better able to connect with them and enjoy that interaction because we're coming from a place of comfort with ourselves. Incredible advice. I just love listening to the sound of your voice. I already feel more peaceful and connected. Dr. Vivek Murthy, thank you so much for being with us today. And when we come back, Dr. Jen answers your latest COVID questions. Stay with us. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. Well, Dr. Jen Ashton is joining us now with your coronavirus questions and her answers. Mm -hmm. And we'll start with the first one. And this is a new one for me, but I'm sure you've heard it before. Do we know anything about COVID-19 and conjunctivitis and how long the virus lives in the eye? Very little is officially known about this, but it has been reported in some small case series that eye symptoms can be associated with COVID-19. There's no there's no data yet on whether it correlates with severity or whether it occurs early in the disease course. But things like conjunctivitis or tearing or swelling or in some cases just redness have been associated with COVID-19. And again, It's a mucous membrane. We know that viral particles can be introduced into our eye. But again, where it fits in the whole symptomatology, still learning that. Okay. next question. With COVID-19 potentially coming again this winter, should families wanting to try to get pregnant for the first time be concerned? This is a big question. This is a huge question. I'm hearing from a lot of patients about this. Here's what we know right now about viral respiratory pathogens and pregnancy. We know that women, because they have a suppressed immune system who are pregnant, have an increased risk of complications from influenza. We don't yet think that there is enough data to suggest that they're more susceptible of being infected with coronavirus, which is good news at this point. Um, But again, in terms of family planning, some people are looking down the road and saying, is this going to be too much? Is it going to be a perfect storm? No one has a crystal ball, Mm -hmm. so we can't give a good answer to that. And we have to remember that 50 percent, practically half the pregnancies in this country are unplanned. That doesn't mean undesired, but it means unplanned. Mm. All right. Next question. I am currently recovering from COVID-19. I'm still symptomatic, but once I am free, symptom free for 72 hours, do I then need to get tested again to ensure I'm negative before getting the antibody test? Okay. So a lot of questions here to unpack, Amy. I think the most important ones or are can we and will we ever be at a point in terms of testing capacity where we can use a test of cure, as we say in medicine, test someone who has been positive in the past and say, now you're negative, you're not infectious anymore, you can return to work, et cetera, et cetera. We are not there yet, obviously. In terms of when to get an antibody test, again, as we learn more about the time course of these antibodies and when they show up, it's thought that they appear anywhere from around 10 days after symptoms start. We don't know how long they'll last. And whether or not you have antibodies, Amy, and this is so important, does not have any correlation at this time with whether or not you're infectious or contagious. Wow. Okay, yeah, so that is still good a lot to know. To That's learn. very important yeah. to know. All right, next question. Would you recommend replacing our toothbrushes more now than we normally would? Well, let's think about this really on a deep dive level. If you should be the only one using your toothbrush, <laughs> right? <laughs> Fair point. Ideally. Fair point. That's right. So um, in other words, if you have coronavirus on that toothbrush yesterday, you've already used it 
why would you need a new one tomorrow? It's already been introduced and you've been exposed to it. So I would I don't think there's any official guidelines on this at this point. Just common sense. Yeah. My takeaway, don't share your toothbrush. Yeah, All right. And that's always what mom Amy has said to her kids. That too. is correct. All right. Thank you, Dr. Jen. You and you can submit questions to Dr. Jen on her Instagram at Dr. J. Ashton. Well, Georgia is one of the first states to ease coronavirus lockdown restrictions. This past Friday, non-essential businesses like salons and bowling alleys started reopening. And not everyone is thrilled about that. A group of more than 50 restaurants around Atlanta pledging not to reopen yet. But others are certainly happy to have their doors back open again, including salon owners Julia Butler and Brooke McLaughlin, who join us now. Welcome, and I know you're back open, so tell us how it's going so far. It's going great. It's going very smoothly. Um, it's going slowly, but um, all in all, I would say that um, we've been successful. I mean, I, we were staying booked, and um, everyone's excited, and they're thrilled to be back to work. Um, we do have a few employees that we're not comfortable yet, and we're fully supportive of them, but all in all, um, we're thrilled. We're thrilled to be back, Amy. Yeah, you you know it's controversial, but you're a family-owned and you are a small business. So why was it important for you to reopen as soon as it was possible? Because we have, you know, almost 45 people that work for us, that this is their career. It's not a hobby. This is how they pay their rent. This is how they feed their family. And so we wanted to make sure to get them back working as quickly as possible Plus, we know that people, you know, our guests are suffering um, being sheltered in place. And, you know, we want to make sure that they are feeling comfortable and feeling good about themselves again. And there is nothing that's going to make a woman or a man feel better than to have their hair done. <laughs> I know that in the weeks leading up to your reopening, you took many steps to prepare. You're also taking precautions currently for customers once they arrive. Walk us through what you're doing. So as each client is arriving to the door, we are, um, or excuse me, arriving to their appointment, we are asking them to call us to let us know that they've arrived, um, at which point we'll go over about five medical questions with them. And then if their stylist is ready, we'll have them meet us at the door to take their temperature, at which point we will also um, have them go ahead and put on their mask. And then we are giving them each a little bottle of hand sanitizer that we um, were able to get and then they can enter the building. If their stylist isn't ready, we are having them wait in their cars until their stylist is ready and re-sanitized from their previous guests. And what about the stylist? What are they doing or what are you giving to them to protect themselves when they're styling someone? Sure, so each of them are um, we're each wearing masks. Um, every time that someone is shifting around the salon, we um, our, our associates and our assistants are Johnny on the spot with disinfecting everything. Um, we're asking each of them when they are on breaks um, to exit the building and go into their cars. Um, we're also taking their temperatures when they re-enter the building. Um, so we're having as le the least amount of people in the salon as possible so that we don't overcrowd the building. I know you were both very eager to open back up, but were there any hesitations? Uh, did you all have any disagreements about when and how you should do this? No, I, I feel like uh, we were pretty prepared and um, we were just waiting for Governor Kemp um, to give us the date on which on when to reopen. And as soon as he gave us the date, we felt pretty prepared and pretty organized to be able to go ahead and safely say that we were ready to reopen. Well, we certainly wish you the best, both personally and professionally. Julia Butler and Brooke McLaughlin, thank you for being with us today.
Thank, Thank you, you so Amy, much. for having us. And still ahead here on What You Need to Know, cashing in on some assets you may have thought were untouchable, our personal financial expert with those details, and then the special initiative to help those in need when it comes to one of our biggest expenses, paying the rent on the first of the month. We're back in a moment. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, What You Need to Know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. With furlough and unemployment numbers rising amid the pandemic, many people are left scrambling for a way to make ends meet. In response, Congress has enacted financial crisis initiatives through the CARES Act. That means new emergency measures now allow you to withdraw a portion of your 401k before retirement. So here to share the best ways to get your money in a pinch is financial expert Farnoosh Tarabi. Farnoosh, thanks for being with us. So the CARES Act has basically bent the rules, giving two options for tapping into your 401k. So walk us through those two rules. Right. So there's the early distribution and then there's the loan. The 401k early distribution, and by the way, this applies to employer-sponsored retirement accounts, so 403bs as well. Um, You can take out an early distribution tax-free, penalty-free. You can start to pay that money back um, and avoid the tax over three years. But do know that there's a limit to this. It's about uh, $100,000, which is a lot of money. Um, And uh, so that's the withdrawal. Then there's the loan, which you can take out up to um, $100,000 as well. The interest is in, it's going to depend on your uh, employer. Sometimes it's very little, sometimes nothing. You don't have to start paying that loan back until a year after you make the, the loan. And, and so this is something that I think for everybody, you need to make careful considerations here. There's a lot of benefits, which we just talked about, but there's also some downside risk, right? This is money that if you take out will not grow with compound interest, right? Over the years. This is not going to be money that you're going to have in necessarily in the future. It's going to delay retirement potentially. But as the saying goes, Amy, if your house is on fire, you're not going to worry about the cost of the water to hose down your house. So if you need this money to pay back um, some credit card debt, you need to pay rent, your mortgage, your uh, health insurance, these immediate needs, uh, I would say then this is something that you want to consider carefully. Okay, so it's a good idea for some people. Is there one of these plans that you'd recommend over the other? You know, I like to make sure people are secure financially today and in their future. So for that reason, I appreciate the 401k loan because it is structured to have you pay it back over time. One caveat to this, though, Amy, is that while right now you have about a five-year uh time frame to pay back this loan. If you lose your job, if you leave your job, which a lot of us right now, that's a big concern, the loan will be due relatively quickly. You won't have that five-year period, in some cases, just 60 days to pay it back in full. So that's something to really think about. Yeah. And not everyone has a workplace retirement account. So what then can you do? Right. So the new rules also um, also allow us to take money out early distribution from a traditional IRA, a simple IRA, a SEP IRA if you're a self-employed individual, and always the Roth IRA before the pandemic and now you can take out money, uh, you can take out your contributions tax and penalty free. So there are those other retirement options for people who don't may have who may not have a 401k through work. Yeah, and some people don't have any of the above, and they consider taking out that cash advance against a credit card. 
Yeah, this is really not a favorite of mine. And I think you want to really think hard about this. This is absolute last ditch effort. You have no other options because here's the thing. It's very, very expensive. It's one of the most expensive ways to borrow. You have a very high interest of over 20% that starts accruing immediately. Mm -hmm. You have the cash withdrawal fee as well as the ATM fee. And so this becomes very expensive and studies show people have a very hard time paying these back. So I would avoid it at all costs. Yeah, these, that can go from bad to worse very quickly. Farnoosh Tarabi, thank you so much for that expert advice. We certainly appreciate it. My pleasure. We're going to turn now to Dr. Jen Ashton for final thoughts today. Well, Amy, um, you know from the very beginning, it's been on my radar to really connect the dots on this disease and not just focus on the lungs, which is its primary organ of attack. And what I'm referring to is the effects from the neck up. So the effects on our mental health, the effects on our psychological or psychiatric well-being and neurologic manifestations, something that you and I have spoken about. And these effects of COVID-19 can be direct effects or they can be consequences of being sick or just being a affected by the pandemic. And in some cases, we're starting to learn about people who, as they recover, they get hit with this second wave mm. and it's all from the neck up. And these can be as debilitating as the initial virus and the effects of being sick. In some cases, especially in people who have been critically ill in the ICU, they get some profound cognitive impairment, emotional distress after with depression, anxiety, even suicidal thoughts. The bottom line is this is a temporary crisis. There is always help available. Do not be afraid to ask for help. It should be no different than having a cough. And we have to keep our mental well-being first and foremost here, I think. Yeah, that is a powerful message, yeah, Dr. Really Jen. important. Thank you very you much. Bet. Every day, every hour, things are moving, changing so fast. And that's why we're here for you. The answers you need, the information you want, we will get through this together. And next right here, The Good Neighbor with the brainstorm on how to help others make the rent. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. With the national unemployment rate soaring to a record high, the numbers of those facing financial struggles are expected, unfortunately, to grow. One New York native has been using social media and GoFundMe to help. Frederick Joseph has raised over $300,000 and counting with an initiative called Hashtag Rent Relief. He is here to tell us more about it. Frederick, thank you for being with us. You are truly a hero, and you didn't just start with this COVID-19 crisis, because back in 2018, you also went viral because of another GoFundMe campaign that helped raise nearly a million dollars to send Harlem kids to see Black Panther for free. So talk a little bit about this recent motivation and inspiration behind what you're doing. Yeah. Um, well, I appreciate you having me. You know, uh, for me personally, I I couldn't sit by and watch as people struggled, um, not just paying rent, but, you know, paying for groceries, paying uh, for medication, uh, keeping the lights on in their homes. So I, I spoke to the GoFundMe team and, you know, we, we put our heads together and figured out a way where I could use my platform um, and my network to really um, quickly um, help people. Uh, so the rent relief campaign was born. Um, we decided that um, the best thing to do was to give people cash in hand um, via Cash App, Zelle, PayPal. 
Um, and all people have to do is uh, send me a comment or reply um, on Twitter or Instagram. Um, and then if you're chosen, uh, you'll have money in your account um, within a few hours. Wow, that is incredible. Do you have an idea of how many people you've helped so far? Uh, so far, we've helped um, about 1,300 people, a little over that. Wow. And, and you say people just send you something. You look into the situation. How do you decide who gets help and how much money they get? Well, you know, the goal for us is to make as much, as a, as much of an impact as possible. So uh, we decide who uh, will receive the funds based on um, just that, right? Who can really um, have a deep change made for them with the $200 that we've been giving out to people. Um, you know, thus far we've gotten over a hundred thousand, uh, responses. So it's not easy to choose, but, um, obviously if someone needs money for, um, a laptop versus someone who needs money to, you know, put food on the table for their three children. Um, I think the choice is pretty simple. Yeah. And you said response, they're responding to you to see if they're eligible for money, but do they ever respond to get that chance to thank you for that money. Yeah. Um, you know, people have been extremely receptive to not only being chosen, um, but also just watching um, as we've been able to help people. You know, there's people who have thanked me and and um, thanked GoFundMe uh, who have not been chosen or who are not asking mm. for funds at all. It's, it's really been heartwarming to see. But I think the most important thing, actually, is that other people have stepped in to help those who we haven't chosen yet. Well, when times are tough, it brings out the best in people like you. Frederick Joseph, thank you for all that you do for so many. Thank you so much. And that's our program for today. I'm Amy Robach. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.